Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And today we're really delighted to be joined by Director Janelle Ford, who is the director of Illinois' Department of Central Management Services, one of the most important state agencies that you may not be that familiar with. Uh, Director Ford has a really interesting background. She grew up in the Boston area, attended the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad studying economics um, at the Wharton School. Um, She then went on to Stanford, earned an MBA there, and then has had a really rich career in both the public and private sectors. In the private sector, she's worked for such firms as Boston Consulting, American Express, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. In the public sector, she's uh, been the director for the Chicago Public Schools and chief operator operating officer for the city of Chicago and also separately for the uh, State Board of Education. Um, and she became the director of CMS in 2019, January of 2019. So she's been on the job for three years, has done some really innovative work and is joining us from her office in Chicago. So Director Ford, great to see you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. And yes, I'm joining from 555 West Monroe um, is our new headquarters here in Chicago. So thank you again, Dr. Shaw, for having me. Perfect. Well, let's talk a little bit about just kind of you, you growing up. I know you grew up in the Boston area. Um, your, your parents, as I understand, are from, are from Barbados. Did they meet in Boston or had they met prior? Or how did that all happen? They, they met in actually Cambridge, Massachusetts. So they met in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They did not know each other before coming to the U.S. Um, my mother actually, uh, her background's in public policy, and she was a budget director for a state agency uh, in Massachusetts. But they met in Boston, Cambridge, got married, had me um, and my sister, my brother. So there's three of us. And yeah, so I grew up um, in High Park, Massachusetts, more specifically. Okay. And then to tell us about your, your journey to Penn. I mean, what, what brought you there? Even at that point, did you have kind of a strong focus on economics and management? How did that happen? Not at all. So one of the reasons that we, and I will bend anyone's ear, especially your ear this afternoon about internships, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about your internship uh, uh, as a governor's fellow here at the state of Illinois. Um, but I had done all manner of thing related to science. I thought I was gonna be a biologist, a researcher, something in the science field. And I went to a small independent girls school, the Windsor School, and they strongly encouraged us just to try things. And I volunteered during the school year. I had internships during the summer. And one summer I was, um, the head of the upper school suggested I attend a program. It happened to be hosted at Wharton. And it was for students interested in business. I had no interest in business. I just applied and I got in and I loved it. It literally changed the trajectory of my life. I just, I didn't know what it was. I had only spent time in labs and research facilities and hospitals and I just, it clicked for me. And the the interesting piece in terms of how it then I then got to Penn is I knew I wanted to be on campus, business felt right. But I've also always had this connection of like wanting to do something that has an impact or connection for for something bigger. My mother worked for the state of Illinois, for the state of Massachusetts, excuse me. My father worked at Mass General Hospital, helping to serve patients and ensure that they got the food and nutrition that they needed um, during their stay at the hospital. So this idea of like service to people um, in various ways has been part of my upbringing. And that just is at the core, maybe, the core of kind of who I am. But then as I 
was thinking about what do I want to do? Where would I go to school? I applied early decision or early action, whichever one is binding. And I thought, this is where I want to be and I'll figure it out. And I got to Penn and I realized I really liked business. But I also realized I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to mean. Um, and so for me, as you mentioned in my bio, I worked in a number of different organizations. And it was really about figuring out where my interests and my skill sets also can then overlap with my passion. Well, tell us about the, the, the journey from Penn to Stanford. I mean, as you were finishing up at Penn, did you, would, were at that point, were you more focused on, on a, uh, a management route or, or, or how, would, how did that work out? Definitely. I left Wharton the way that most traditional Whartonites leave. I was going to New York. Um, I spent my summers in New York. I spent my summers uh, working in finance. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to New York. I'll either be in finance or consulting. And I did take the consulting route and then transitioned into finance later. And I was probably more traditional, a more traditional um, economics student, if you will, or graduate. And as I was thinking about what I was going to do next, I always knew I was going to business school. I, that I knew. And I also knew that I'd probably be out of school at least four to five years. I really, I thought at the time, and I still stand behind this, um, I, I know that trends have changed. Having worked um, for the MBA's undergrad, that's one of my jobs when I was on campus. I always appreciated talking to folks in particular who had a lot of work experience, who had seen a lot of different types of things, who had a lot of experience to share, a lot of knowledge to share. And so I always knew how to go back to school, um, probably business school, but I didn't want to go right away. And there's nothing wrong with going right away, but for me, I knew I wanted to have different work experiences to help inform whatever I might do next. And then to be really candid, I wasn't sure exactly which business, what type of business school was gonna be right for me. And of all the schools I applied to, Stanford was probably the most um, unique in terms of their, their pedagogy, but also their challenge to you know, have students think differently about the future, their future and our, the community's future, like the broader future. And that was a huge risk for me. Um, that was not the way I was wired. I'm an East Coast girl. I, my background was in finance. That's what I knew. And I just thought if there's a chance that I might do something different, if there's a chance that I can explore what that different can look like, if there's a chance that I might, quote, find my passion and happen to be really good at it, it would probably be at a place that's going to challenge me to get out of my comfort zone. And so very candidly, that's why I chose Stanford. Um, I went, obviously, um, far, far, far away from my friends and family, and that was tough. But I have to say, those two years really did force me to kind of sit with myself and, and think about, well, what do I want to do? How can I change organizations? Could an organization I work for help to change a community? Um, and so for me, their motto is change lives, change organizations, change the world. It sounds very cheeky. Um, but that really resonated with me. So that's how I got myself to, to Stanford. Well, I mentioned just the various uh, private sector jobs. And I mean, they're just sort of almost a who's who, Boston Consulting, American Express, Goldman, uh, Citicorp. What, I mean, as you look back now and have some perspective, I mean, what was kind of the through line between all of these jobs? Were they coming into, was it sort of where you set on projects and problem solving or kind of reimagining firms? Or how would you connect those various experiences? I think the through line has been, for me, it was the ability to 
to bring like intellectual like horsepower to the conversation. So I love to think through problems. I'm a problem solver. Um, I would say in hindsight, I'm a doer. I'm an operator, which is why I'm at CMS. But at that time, I didn't know exactly what that meant. But I like to fix things. I like to improve things. And so being able to work in organizations where you're helping to improve a business, you're helping to improve a business idea, you're helping to, whatever the issue may be in consulting, for example, you're helping someone think through a very tough situation. If they could have done it themselves, they would have. And so to be able to work with really smart people, to always have different kinds of problems presented to you, different kinds of businesses, industry groups, that was my through line. And that was the, wow, I really enjoy messy, complicated things. Because again, in hindsight, as I matured personally, but also in my career, one of my talents is to be able to bring order to chaos. And so I think as I was working with clients or in business units or you know, you're working on a due diligence of a deal and you're seeing just a lot of things moving around and swirling. It's like that ability to kind of press pause and, and put order to some of that chaos, if you will. And so um, as I thought, as I've thought about just even my time here in the public sector, that's been part of it too. Um, not to say that the public sector is pure chaos, but there's, the system is so large. How can people bring order and support the important work that we do in the public sector? And that's where I just kind of got the aha of like, maybe I can do what I've been doing at BCG or what I've been doing at other organizations. And if somebody would give me a shot because my background is very non-traditional, could I do that in the public space? Well, so and then let's let's maybe talk about the translation from these private sector skills to the public sector and, you know, the city of Chicago, sure. the Chicago public school system, um, Illinois Board of Education. I mean, you know, there's a, a fair number of people in the business world who, when they come to government, they say, oh, my God, this system is just unworkable. It's unmovable. You know, they just, you know, pull their hair out and, and flee. What, um, you know, how, how did the transition work for you then? I, if I'm, I'll be very candid. It, it worked well, better than I had expected. The, you know, the irony is it took 10 months for me to get hired at CPS. And I remember thinking like, they're never going to hire me. And fortunately or, or unfortunately, fortunately, I landed in the right role for me. Unfortunately, it took significantly longer than I expected, but I just knew when I was leaving BCG that something I needed, I wanted to do something different. The easy way out for me was going to do go back to private. And the harder thing or harder challenge was finding my way into the public sector space, because as I mentioned, I'm a non-traditional hire. Um, at least I thought I was at the time a non-traditional hire. I don't know what the entry points are. I'm out of grad school at this point, so there's no on-campus recruiting. How do I even know what the right level is, right? How do I even know what the right spaces are? And so obviously I did my research and I networked and you read as much as you can, but you just don't know. And I went to CPS, I started in um, project management. I was there for just a few weeks, got moved to the CEO's office and started managing their stimulus funds. And then it just, I mean, I just was put on special projects and after special projects supporting his key initiatives and then became the director of strategy. But to answer your question around kind of why I stayed, if you will, it is a huge system. CPS, State Board of Education, our government is outsized and it's in the role that we play in people's lives. I don't care if you're a small 10 person agency, the impact that the 
that 10 person agency has on people's lives is significant. And so, as I mentioned before, I've worked in large organizations. I've supported the sale or divestiture of billion dollar, <laughs> billion dollar assets. And so for me, that, that complicated messiness, if you will, the scale didn't intimidate me. It certainly needs to be appreciated and respected. Um, but it didn't really intimidate me so much as it would became an opportunity to think about how I can bring my unique skill set to the table to help solve some of these issues. Even if it's small, a very finite, discrete issue, could I help be part of what will actually be that change? And that's what's kept me in this space. That's what's spurred me on to have different roles and to even come to an organization like CMS where we just do so many things and support so many other agencies and their critical work. It's being part of the change. Well, let's talk about CMS. And I want to read a couple sentences from your website, your mission statement, and then just have you kind of, you know, kind of expand on it. Um, your you, website says, you know, CMS is the operational engine working behind the scenes to enable the state's more than 80 agencies, boards, and commissions to deliver efficient, reliable services to all Illinois citizens. The agency's mission is to support the state by delivering, delivering innovative, responsive, and effective services that provide the best value for Illinois state government and the people it serves. So maybe two things. First of all, if you could, un, maybe even first, you might tell how, how this job happened, how the governor approached you and, and, and how that happened, and then just kind of unpack CMS for, for our listeners who maybe are, certainly they've heard of it, but they don't quite know how it all hangs together. Sure. I'll give you the very abridged version. Um, <laughs> he looked at my resume and said, I see CMS. And, and I had conversations, of course, with his team. And uh, in my final conversation with him, he's like, I think CMS would be a great place for you. And we had discussed some potentially other spaces that might make sense. And it felt right. And I think one of the reasons it felt right, I won't put words in his, you know, in his mouth, but I think the reason it felt right for me, and I think probably felt right for him, is it brought together, again, a number of different themes across the work that I've done. So I've worked in fleet and facility management. I've worked as a deputy director of energy procurement and management, but also process improvement. I was a COO of two different organizations. So being able to bring all those different aspects to, and obviously a consultant, um, to an organization like CMS that is so broad in what we do, uh, and to I, I like to believe be thoughtful and strategic and intentional about how we think about implementing change. That's why it was a, not a no brainer because certainly CMS has had a reputation and we are critical in what we do. Um, and so certainly I respected the fact that this was a, a big undertaking, but it was a no brainer in that the opportunity to rise to the challenge, to serve the state, to, to be a support function for critical operations across the state is something that to me is a meaningful calling. And I go back to what I said earlier and what I felt when I came into the public sector is how can I bring my talents, my skills, my interests, my passion, if you will, to bear, to do something that is bigger than myself, that is outsized. And so being able to go to an organization and to help lead an organization like CMS with the team that I have here that we've developed, that we've grown, that we've matured. That to me just felt very, I could see that, like literally as he was talking, I, I could see that like potentially being where we would end up. 
and we've been making those strides. And into the second part of the question that you asked, there's a lot. That's a lot in our mission statement. Uh, but we are the operational engine. We support IEMA, the Emergency Management Organization, and IDPH, the Health Department, and DCFS, you know, Children and Family Services, and all the other agency boards and commissions to do the work that they need to do for our residents, for our various constituents. So we want to be almost running in the background as seamlessly and as quietly as possible. We want to do it efficiently and effectively. And so for us, what that means is we've taken a hard look at how we can improve. We've had to make some tough decisions about managing people up, managing some more some folks out. We've spent a lot of time focused on professional development. And the other piece that I think was really critical is we spend time also just thinking through a strategic plan. We have so many bureaus, almost 800 FTEs. How are we going to, as a organization, make sure that we are prioritizing what we need to do to make sure other people can do their jobs? If we put our oxygen mask on first so we can help others, what does that actually look like? So we went through a strategic planning exercise in 2019, bureau by bureau, so line of business by line of business, and we rolled it up to the organization, to the, you know, basically the, the whole CMS, big CMS level, if you will. And that's really been our guiding, like our North Star. That's been how we've been keeping ourselves honest and accountable and helping us to reallocate the finite resources that we have. And then the last piece I would just say, you know, the governor said this in my interview and in conversation with him, but he also mentioned this in our first cabinet meeting. And it's been a recurring theme, but I appreciated that he made it clear. Customer service and customer experience should be at the core of what we do. My customers are not just, they're downstream constituents, generally. Usually I'm serving agency boards and commissions, generally. And so really being able to challenge government to think differently about the delivery of services was exciting to me. And then, you know, we chatted a little bit earlier, but the pandemic just threw everything on its ear, right? The expectation that people have now about how services will be delivered to them what does engagement look like? That is completely different in 2022 than it was in 2019. Well, let's talk I mean, about a couple of these pieces that are that are really interesting to me as someone who's followed CMS for a number of years. One is, I mean, employee benefits. I mean, there's a lot of public sector employees in the state of Illinois with health care and insurance and so forth. Talk a little bit about, I mean, that, that's almost a company unto itself. Tell me, tell us about how you approach that broad realm. Well, one is we've got great leadership there. So um, one of the things I, if I haven't said it yet, I need to say it. The governor and his administration have been incredibly supportive of the agency, of me. Um, but what that's allowed me to do is to make sure that we have the right folks in the right roles doing the right sets of things. And so benefits, to your point, is a huge undertaking. I don't think people even appreciate what we call the Bureau of Benefits is all the deferred compensation for the state of Illinois, is all the risk management, is workers' compensation, and then it's benefits administration and management of the actual health care plan, if you will, for over 440,000 covered lives. And so we have a um, small but mighty team of folks who are really are expert in what they do. And, you know, one of the things I'm extra proud of is we negotiated with the, the number of the, our labor partners in 2019, significant plan design changes. Why does that matter? We've got over 33 labor partners in the state of Illinois. Labor also sits in CMS. We negotiate contracts with our labor partners. 
one of the things that's critical to Governor Pritzker, but and of course to CMS, and obviously to our labor partners is the benefits that our employees have. And ensuring that we are taking care of our, our employees, their dependents, and of course our retirees, but also doing that in a very cost efficient and effective manner that still delivers the right kind of care um, and benefits again to our, to our colleagues. And so we worked with our, our labor partners to, to save hundreds of millions of dollars in costs over four years. We've restructured our plan entirely. But the other thing that we did that I was incredibly proud of is we launched Be Well Illinois. And Be Well Illinois is the state's first ever comprehensive wellness program. And the only reason we were able to even launch Be Well Illinois in 2021 is because we had turned the corner on operational excellence and on the administrative side of the house. So we had a number of issues in previous years, a lot of staff turnover, a lot of vacancies, but we finally turned the corner and got to a place where we felt like we can actually think a little differently maybe a little bit more broadly about what should benefits look like? How do we support our employees? How do we attract new employees? How do we support our retirees and their depend and dependents? And we launched Be Well Illinois with the, the vision, if you will, to support our, our colleagues and their dependents in any way we can. So we focus on social emotional, physical health and financial health, really wanting to make sure that folks are living their best fullest lives. And so when you ask about like benefits, I know that you know there's always a focus on the 440,000 number, the billions of dollars every year that we spend across 10 different carriers and plans to ensure that people have options at the state. So we've got great benefits. If you work for the state of Illinois, we've got great benefits. But for me, the piece that I'm most excited about is actually what we're doing to help move the needle for folks to feel like they're living their most full and safe lives. Well, shifting gears significantly, um, but it, I guess it just shows the kind of the, the breadth of your portfolio. You received a really quite a nice shout out from the governor in his state of the state address when he said he was talking about property management. And he said, at the beginning of my term, I tasked Cent Illinois Central Management Services with taking a comprehensive look at all real estate holdings that Illinois has accumulated over the years and to make an honest effort to eliminate the waste and inefficiency that had previously been overlooked. As a result of their work, I made a, the decision to consolidate, consolidate multiple long-term leases in downtown Chicago, saving taxpayers an average of approximately $20 million a year for the next 30 years. And then it goes on to say, overall, with this real estate restructuring, we have, we have reduced Illinois government office space by over 640,000 square feet by 2024 and lowered the cost of le leasing Chicago office space from $41 a square foot to just $20 a square foot. There's a lot there, but tell us about just the property management challenge, which again, is almost a business unto itself. Mm -hmm. um, well, yes, we were all very proud uh, to hear the governor acknowledge the work that we've done. I will just also say, back to my previous comments about having the right folks sitting on the right seats on, on the bus, if you will, we have an extraordinary chief operating officer, Ashay Kalajolu, and she has capably, more than capably led this work. and. Um, I, part of Aisha's vision, if you will, and the team's vision has really been around making sure that we're meeting the needs of our agency, so my immediate clients and their constituents, and that we're also being very good stewards of, of course, state resources and also thinking about sustainability. And so um, the governor, of course, he, he tasked us with that effort. And we spent a lot of time, Aisha in, in particular and her team, really thinking about how can we optimize a portfolio. So back to operations, the operation question of 
you know, you think you know what your box is, what your inputs are. Now you've got to solve for how can you optimize, how can you rationalize this resource? And to be frank, I mean, it, it took a lot of time to work with agencies to understand their business, to understand their needs. One of the things we spent a lot of time understanding from a programmatic perspective is, are there ways for us to partner with other like institutions and or parts of government? So we have co-located um, agencies with like services or like constituency groups into similar spaces, which has reduced our footprint and costs. And the other piece of what we've done um, is to also reduce uh, our footprint by more than 30%. So the state introduced um, through CMS uh, new space standards that actually reduce our physical footprint, our square footage footprint across the entire portfolio, not just in the Chicago land area, uh, in particular in Chicago, of course, um, because of density, but at least by 30%. So we are holding everyone accountable, of course, including CMS, even in the new building that I'm in now, to be, again, very thoughtful about how are we designing our spaces? How are we ensuring that we're st still able and better able to deliver the services to the people who need them but also being better stewards of resources. And I'll go back to actually something that I, um, that I touched on just very briefly earlier. One of the things that I think helped us be successful is that we weren't afraid to ask ourselves some basic questions and then some tough questions. It's easy to say, we've been in this building for 10 years, we should continue to be in this building. It's a lot more difficult to say, well, let's think about where your constituencies are. Let's think about is this building in space as it's currently built, does it meet your needs? And let's think about if we're concerned about the footprint that we have here from a sustainability or, or any other kind of perspective, let's think about what it might take for our space to look different. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for our agency partners, a lot of work for us. But my team took the time to ask those questions again and again and again and they solved an optimization question. And so the, our ability to even be in the space to even talk to you all about reductions in footprints, um, carbon footprint, physical footprint, is really been because the governor has given me the ability to work with the right experts to get that kind of work done. Well, tell us about the historic saga to sell the Thompson Center. That's been something that's been on the state agenda for many, many years. Tell us where that stands. So right now we're in negotiations. So I'll back up. Uh, the Thompson Center disposition, as we call it, is led by our Chief Operating Officer, Shay Kalajolu, and her team, as well as uh, CMS Chief of Staff, Anthony Pacenti. And um, we are currently negotiating um, the final terms with the with the buyer so we are we're we're very 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 close to being there and you're exactly right it's been a long standing saga but um the governor asked me i think it was three weeks in he said you know i saw him in the hallway and he stopped me and we chatted for a moment and he mentioned three or four priorities to me and he said thompson center are we going to do it and i remember saying to him I'm not going to do it. I don't have that expertise, but I do know people who do. And I said, if they join this team, it doesn't mean that I can will this project to happen, but we will have the expertise we need to make it happen. And so um, my colleagues joined me here at the state of Illinois. And to, to your point, we, we, we've made it happen thus far. So we hope that we get to cross that finish line with final negotiations soon.
Let's talk uh, about diversity. And I know this is something that you're really passionate about, having the state of Illinois have a more diverse workforce. Tell us about some of the things you've done to, to make that happen. Sure. So not just something that I, of course, I'm passionate about. Um, I think it's something that I think I know is something that the governor and lieutenant governor have from day one talked about um, to me personally, uh, but certainly to their cabinet in terms of wanting to ensure that we are doing, we're treating our employees with respect. We're treating our constituents with respect. And that we're also making sure that to the extent that there are practices or policies or legislation, of course, that need to change to, uh, to be more reflective of the people, the institution that we wanna be, that we're thinking about that. And so when you ask, what are some of the things that we're doing? One of the things that's, and I'll talk specifically about CMS, uh, that we started before the pandemic, but we really increased uh, the communication and the, this particular uh, topic during 2020 was CMS conversations. So we started something called CMS University Professional Development Opportunity Online for our colleagues. It was intended to be in person. We had to move it online. And um, part of CMS converse, uh, University, excuse me, is CMS conversations. And it was an opportunity and it is an opportunity for us to one, share resources with our colleagues, very curated resources around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our highest webinar, our highest attended webinar in the summer of 2020 with almost 400 attendees was around biases, bias and unconscious bias. And I was so surprised. We, this was a CMS pilot and we had colleagues across the state enterprise that wanted to learn more about unconscious bias. And for me, it was this, it was a realization that we have an obligation to meet people where they are, physically, um, literally, and figuratively. And so we started producing more content online, of course, because of the pandemic, but also just allows us for greater reach, right? And so we have um, really kind of expanded CMS conversations to be able to provide information and resources and tools, webinars, experts, books, book clubs, um, but also to help our colleagues get information related to where they are in their journey and understanding about DEI. And what I thought was interesting and in particular pretty cool was we also did it from um, a persona base. So when we would say Monday messages to our colleagues, every Monday I would do a message to our colleagues, we would do a video and we would also have a DEI topic and discussion. When I would get feedback, it would almost always be, thank you for sharing something that I could share with my kids. Or I'm having this conversation in my book club and I didn't know this was new to me. Or it was, most of the feedback had nothing to do with work. And I thought that was really interesting because that's the way that we're engaging. We're engaging in the context of work, but all the feedback I was getting was about how this information was actually helping them or informing them, their lives outside of work. And we also know that people bring their full selves to work. So it was just this like aha moment of we've got to just help people understand wherever they are for whatever reason that this is an important topic and conversation. And then the other piece is, is that as we of course have built out CMS conversations to be a resource and tool, from a recruiting perspective, we're working with our employment plan councils. So we have four different employment plan councils. Um, those councils are established in statute, 
but we work with the folks who are appointed to those councils to help support outreach and initiatives in certain community areas. We also, um, from a recruiting perspective, we're very mindful about the partners and the spaces in which we are recruiting. But I think probably the most important thing that we spent a lot of time focused on at CMS is the culture of respect. Understanding and appreciating someone's difference takes time. But if I can respect you as a colleague and a person, we can do work together. And we actually could probably do life together. I don't necessarily have to understand all that you bring to the table and you don't have to understand all that I bring to the table, but in the context of respect and professionalism, if we can bring that to work, we can actually be productive together and we can serve our constituents together. So we've always been talking about a culture of respect at CMS and I think that's been helpful. I think that has also helped in the conversations that we have, um, the workshops that we have, the standing meetings that we have about DEI initiatives. And then again, the, the last, last, last thing I'll mention is we also initiated the one thing policy review. So we do a lot of things at CMS and I, I love the theme of one thing. You can only focus sometimes on one thing. So we ask bureaus to review their policies, review legislation, and at least come to the table with one thing that we're not sure why it is what it is, but we think it might impact people in a um, less than ideal way. And that's been the basis for some legislative proposals. It's been the basis for some practice changes. And it's been the basis for us from even a facility management perspective to help inform how we think about designing our spaces. So it doesn't matter whether we're administrative hearings or property management or benefits. We're challenging everyone in CMS to think about, are we giving delivering services in a way that, they, that they'll resonate with folks? And as individuals who have a lot of authority um, and who obviously have an outsized impact in people's lives, as I mentioned earlier, are we being mindful and thoughtful around some of the practices and policies that again, impact people downstream that we just haven't questioned for years? So that one thing review to me was also very critical um, in terms of furthering our DE&I initiatives. Well, one issue that you and I talked about offline a few minutes ago was just this whole revolution in the American workforce, probably the global workforce, particularly, you know, focusing on remote work. And I saw an article just a couple weeks ago in the Washington Post. It was called Corporate America is Coming Around to Remote Work. And I wonder, they quoted an analyst who said, remote is permanent, it's here, it's accelerating, and it's the largest change to American living and working arrangements since World War II. But it was interesting, the, the article also talked about some of the challenges caused by remote working, citing just the challenges with mentorship, yep. um, office culture, productivity. So as someone who has a really kind of clear eye on the workforce, how do you look at this revolution in remote and how does it work well? Um, what are its weaknesses and how do you think it should be um, developed going forward? Well, that last question was a big one. <laughs> I'll give you my thoughts on how it might be developed going forward. I don't know that I absolutely know, but I'll work a bit backwards. So I'll start with, we saw this coming in 2019. I remember talking to my personnel team and folks looked at me and they just thought like, she's crazy. Um, and I said, we've got we've to be thinking about hybrid work. We've got to be thinking about remote work. And they just were like, we will never do remote work. We will, 
someone said it would be seven years before that conversation even came up. And I said, okay, well, humor me. And uh, the team did humor me. And we looked at some best practices across different um, states that I've actually thought about and have implemented remote or hybrid work um, context. And this is in 2019. They're not, there were not a ton, but there were some. Tennessee is, was a great example. And we actually visited them and had a lot of um, knowledge sharing with them. And my team did a, a white paper and they went through the exercise of thinking through what would it take? Now we weren't there yet, but we at least thought through like, what could it take? Or at least what could it take for CMS? And that might've been January or February of 2020 and then COVID hit. And I really do credit the fact that we had thought about it, not to the nth degree, but we at least had our, our wheels turning. We put a little pen to paper. We had actually gone through the exercise of like, we would do this, we would do this. We'd have to, we'll come back to that, but we know we have to, to have this discussion and so on and so forth. And so we were able to take, to not just send CMS employees home who are eligible to work remotely, but statewide do that. And I think honestly, it's because we were thinking about what could this look like? And I don't know that my colleagues really ever truly believed that we would ever be here. And COVID just accelerated that seven year comment to not even five months. And in terms of what we, I said then, and I would stand behind now, I think it's important for remote to be done well or hybrid to be done well. You've got to have good managers. You cannot manage the same way, generally speaking, that you were managing before. And certainly in government, right? You can't just walk around and look for people and assume that just because Janelle is in her seat that she is working or productive. And conversely, you can't assume that because Janelle's not at her seat, she's not productive. And so, you know, one of the lines I use with my team is managers got to manage. So we spend a lot of time back to CMS University working on professional development around management, not about tracking, but really thinking about how strategic are you with what your team needs to be doing? Do you have deliverables and, and deadlines? Do you have a sense of what productivity throughput would look like? How are you managing your team? And if work is getting done in, in a timely fashion and they have the resources that they need, maybe we're more open to considering whether or not Janelle needs to sit in a 200, 400, whatever it is, square foot space every single day. And so really opened up that conversation um, in terms of what could be possible. Obviously, I have to just mention that there are certain job contexts that can't be done remotely. 30 to 40% of my team was showing up every single day, 24-7, 365, to fix vehicles, to be the engineers in buildings, janitorial services, property management, everything, all the trades, they were here. And so we really do have, and do have in the state context, state police, nurses, correctional officers, um, we have just a number of folks that can't work remotely and certainly folks who can. And so we are uh, currently in a pilot program with some of our labor partners working through what could this look like. And I think in terms of what, what you need for conditions for success, um, not surprisingly, technology. There's a digital divide that I don't think folks really appreciated and I had to learn the hard way. We had colleagues who didn't have internet. That wasn't necessarily something that you think about when you have internet at home. And then we have colleagues who did have internet, but not strong enough when they're also homeschooling their children, right? So, or their kids are home and they're not physically in the school building. And so it seems like a small thing, but whether it's you can't get laptops, 
They didn't have cellular phones available. We didn't have cellular phones available for some of our colleagues who didn't have the technology. They may not have the home infrastructure. Most people don't have extra rooms. And if they have other folks living in their home, it, how can you have a quiet and productive space? And so there are just some natural challenges to the idea and concept of hybrid work. I think the biggest challenge probably is, and, and those that I mentioned are, are pretty sizable, is really just, it's also a mind shift. I was talking to you earlier, every job I've had, I've been in a work environment and worked very many long hours, always in the office building. It was a shift for me. And I have an administrative job where I could work from home. And so we've spent some time also through CMS University working on best practices for being more productive, using technologies, using new tools, um, better management capabilities. What I do think that, you know, as I talk to my colleagues and personnel, one of the things we talk about is we've always known that there's a generational shift happening. We knew that. But the expectations of what a work environment will look like, what a work environment will feel like, and how people engage is, has absolutely changed. And, and one of the things that you mentioned, mentorship, there is something lost, I think and not being able to physically share a coffee with someone. Um, and I think it's the, there's a tension in that comment even, and because there's the, we're not in the office at the same time, but in the context of COVID, even when you are in the office at the same time, you're not engaging like you normally would. So let's put, not that COVID is behind us, but if you put COVID aside for a moment, I do think some of that, that mentorship, some of that formal or informal coaching will be addressed over time. But I do think that employee engagement now is a lot more critical than it was before because people are starting remotely. They have no context for office culture. They have no sense of how it quote used to be. And how do you build a culture when folks are coming in one day a week to see each other, if that? So those are the, some of the things that we are thinking through. Um, I don't have all of the answers, of course. One of the things I'm really proud of our team for is we're not quite 180, but coming from a it'll never happen perspective and coming into a space where they know that this is where we need to be. We want to be competitive. And I will just belabor this point for just one more moment. We want to be an employer of choice. I want the best and brightest talent. That's why I'm here today. I want the best and brightest talent to consider careers in government. And I know I say state government, but I understand for some people, it could be a journey. I started at CPS, went to the city of Chicago, went to ISB, and now I'm here. And so I will take just somebody understanding what it's like to be in this government ecosystem. And then our hope is that they consider joining us here at the state of Illinois. That's, that for me is what's incredibly important and why we, you know, we are excited about these kind of conversations to be able to get in front of audiences where we hope we can help connect the dot and, and manage expectations around what we're looking for and also what we, we think we have to offer. Great. Well, we have some questions, Director Ford, they've been emailed in. And the first one is from Michael in Chicago. 
who asked a really interesting question about whether CMS is sort of typical if other states have a CMS entity, and also wants to know is uh, is it modeled on or diff or does it differ from the Federal General Services Administration? So I guess two pieces. One, do do most states have something like CMS, or are they maybe more typically broken into two or three different agencies? Um, and also, how does it relate to the, the the federal entity? I'll work again. I'll work backwards on that. So thank you, Michael. I am not sure that CMS was modeled after the 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 federal model, the GSA model. Probably. I mean, I think it's just good thinking, right? Consolidating resources around general service type resources. Um, but the first question was around: Do other states have similar? organizations or similar CMS. Yes, absolutely. There is actually an association, the, Nas the National Association of State Chief Administrators, NASCA, um, full transparency, I'm the vice president, but NASCA basically is a group of my peers. And so certainly there are CMSs, if you will, across all different um, states. I think we have 44 or 40 plus um, state members. And so certainly what might be in or out might be different in a centralized agency like a CMS, but generally speaking, of all the states that I'm familiar with, so at least 40 plus, there is a CMS type of organization. It might be called something different, but there's definitely a, a CMS version somewhere. Okay. Roe from Chicago also asks, um, how, how, how much did the state government infrastructure, especially information technology, suffer from lack of investment over the last several decades? And I might use that as a way of segueing about a, an announcement you made recently about a new computer facility being built in Springfield. Um, so maybe if you could talk more broadly about just information technology sure. and, and the state of Illinois. And I will talk broadly because CMS no longer oversees IT. We did up until 2018. Okay. Um, then uh, came the creation of the Illinois Department of Innovation and Technology, Do It. And so Do It has responsibility for all IT um, slash innovations in, in that space. But what I can say is we're great partners to Do It, and we work very closely with them. So I won't speak for them, but what I would offer up is certainly disinvestment is a problem. I mean. We can look at even our own personal homes and appreciate that, you know, an old laptop was not able to meet the needs that we needed during COVID, which is why there are rush on laptops, right? And so I think disinvestment has been a problem. And um, I applaud the Prisker administration and General Assembly for helping to fund some of the, the important criti and critical infrastructure needs that we need. Uh, I'm sure my colleagues would say it's not enough but certainly we're moving in the right direction, but there's there's obviously a lot more to go. Um, and then the last point about our computing center, yes. So uh, CMS supports our colleagues, as I mentioned earlier, in um, finding spaces and places for them to be in to do their work. And so we worked with Do It um, to identify the right space, if you will, the right place, um, for their offsite um, computer computing needs. And so that is why we facilitated that purchase in Springfield. And we're actually very excited to be able to be part of the economic development in the area as well, because we also appreciate while we're helping them meet their needs, we're also an anchor in that space. And, we, and we're excited to help revitalize re some of that um, downtown Springfield area. William from Carbondale asks about what operational changes you've been able to make um, in order to reduce the state of Illinois' carbon footprint. You made a, some reference to that in terms of the property management piece. Any more broad comment you'd like to make on that? Sure. Uh, two things. 
really quickly, broadly property management um, and all of the downstream implications of that. Um, the second piece I'd mentioned is the Thompson Center. Thompson Center is a large building. It takes up one city block. Um, if anybody familiar with Thompson Center knows that. And the building is outside for outsized, excuse me, for our needs, but also from an energy footprint perspective, we use more than twice as much energy than comparable buildings in the loop. So we are very um, energy inefficient, uh, costs us money, but obviously um, is not, is not from an energy perspective, is not where we'd like to be. And we also had a number of different issues with our, even our refrigerant, which has been banned worldwide. And so I know that folks have heard me say time and time again, the Thompson Center, the Thompson Center, the Thompson Center. One of the reasons why it was so important for us um, to really uh, ensure that we got a responsible buyer is because all those issues have to be addressed. And it was important for us to prioritize that as part of the, um, the response package as well. So having that address in the Thompson Center being the large footprint that it is, is critical to helping us reduce our carbon footprint. And then the last piece, the third is the governor in 2021 signed an EO um, and in, as part of the proposed budget this year uh, has allocated, I believe around $30 million for CMS to buy either zero or low efficiency uh, vehicles, emission vehicles. And so we buy vehicles for the state and we're looking forward to um, being able to help support the purchase of either low or no emission vehicles going forward. Okay. Dr. Petri from Champaign asked about, uh, it's a long question, but <coughs> excuse me, basically what happens when a state department, an agency decides to close a facility in a community? Is that something that CMS has a role in, but if it's an, an ag another agency says they want to close down St. Office in, in Carbondale or Champaign or something, how does that process work? So generally, um, and I think I've kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, we, we're downstream of that. So we will work with the agency. They're responsible for knowing their business and their needs. And so if an agency says to us that they need to either find another location, be in another space, we would work with them to, um, to relocate or to find different space options. But we leave the decision about where to be to the agency because really, again, they know their business and they know their constituencies and their needs. Our job from that perspective on the back end would be to ensure that we're finding them an appropriate home, whatever the next home is. And that obviously we're facilitating the close out of facility A and then the move to facility B. Well, just one kind of broad management question. I mean, CMS is, you know, the $8 billion um, entity. How do you go about with, you know, a lot of these disparate elements, how do you go about the, 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 uh, the, the task of managing your week or your month? I mean, <laughs> how do you do this in a strategic way so you're not just, you know, uh, running after, you know, tomorrow's fire drill? Well, there's still fire drills. There's still a lot of fire drills. Um, but my attempt to be strategic, uh, one, I have an amazing chief of staff and he helps to keep me on task. I worked with him at the city of Chicago. He is amazing. I could not do this job without him. And so I think having a, a team that helps you keep your eye, keeps my eye on the prize and um, keeps me really focused on our strategic plan. We know what the agency's priorities are. And so yes, there are day-to-day -day priorities and I do look at my calendar and plan out as much as possible, but it will always come down to, we should be using and leveraging, leveraging our resources to do X, to do Y. 
and coming back to that, that North Star, if you will. And the other piece is also having a strong administrative team. Uh, they, they help ensure that I can make the best use of my time but also get my colleagues what they need. So I spend a lot of time, I, I like to think coaching my team, but also whether it's in my executive assistant, helping me help my colleagues. So what do you need from me and how can I best get it to you and in, in what time frame? So helping folks, and again, I'm an operator. So I look at my calendar, I plan my day, I plan my week, I try to plan my month. If I have that macro level, and then I can kind of come down to that micro level, and I'm clear as to how I can help Director Shaw facilitate X, Y, and Z and the time frame by which he needs that. That's how I keep myself um, not just ping-ponging back and forth. Because it's tempting, right? There's just so much to do here. But that's how I try to be disciplined in terms of keeping myself focused. But also, I'd like to ask you just how you like to relax. I was reading your bio, <laughs> and it said that you like um, travel. Uh, hopefully, that will be returning soon. Baking, crafts, arts. Tell us how you like to unwind after uh, this, these many challenges you face. I love all those things, and I'm hoping to be able to travel again soon. Um, I was too anxious during COVID to travel, so I didn't do that. Uh, but I'm looking to travel again soon. And... I like to bake. So as recently as this week, Valentine's Day, um, we'll, I'll bake treats for the team. And uh, we've got a lot of people on the team. So I had a new stand mixer for Christmas and I put that to use for, uh, for Valentine's Day. So we were promoting Be Well. So I did this hybrid Be Well Heart Health Month and Valentine's Day kit that we sent literally to our colleagues across the state um, and in particular to the shops our garages, our property management folks, the folks who really are in far-flung places that don't necessarily get to engage with us. I know that you're asking what I do to re relax from work. Well, the baking piece is like, I get to bake for people in big batches like that is, and that's super fun. And then I love crafting. So I love making gifts and sewing and just futzing around and putting things together. I have a craft closet, it's very extensive. And I probably spend, five times more than I should to make something than to buy it, but it's like my labor of love. So that's what I used to do. Well, you mentioned travel. Is there any place in particular that you are just really eager to get back to um, and visit or to see someplace on your bucket list that you just haven't quite gotten to yet? Oh, there's so many places and I was definitely not anticipating that question. How about this? I am dying to get back to Barbados. I really am. Um, I think when you can't go places, you appreciate how much they mean to you. And growing up, we would go all the time. And so you're like, oh, I'll just go, I'll just go. And then you get older and you're like, I'll just get around to it. Or you go for this event and you go for that event. And during COVID, I just realized like, that's where my people are from. That's where my family is from. And there's I have family still there. And I haven't gotten a chance to really spend quality time with them. So I would definitely say Barbados, not bucket list, but just with a new appreciation. I've always wanted to do the and around the world trip. And I, one of the things someone told me to do when I was in college, Twinkle Morgan, um, and I've tried to do it, but I've been unsuccessful in fitting in the around, was to travel by yourself at least once, which I've done. I went to Spain for a few months by myself and then traveled to other places as well. And that was life-changing. And take time between jobs if you can. And I, I'm in college and I'm like, I'm not, I don't, 
I don't have that kind of money. Who takes time between jobs? And as you get older, you appreciate that you will always be working. And if you can take some time to enjoy the downtime, to just be with your thoughts and, and your family, um, there's value in that. So I have taken time where I could between jobs. Most times I, I wasn't able to, but I've never been able to do the around the world trip. I think I, I think I got it down to two months and I've only ever been able to take up to a month off. So. Well, we hope that you can hit the road uh, soon and, and enjoy some of the places that you want to visit. Barbados, of course, it would be an, a great place to, to visit. Director Ford, this has been a great conversation. Um, CMS is a really interesting place. I, as I mentioned to you, I was there the early phase of my career, and, and, and it, it is an important and interesting agency. We would love to have you come down to Carbondale and talk to students in the community and and tell us more about your career, you know, the future of work, the work of, of CMS, uh, and its importance to the state of Illinois. Well, I just need to say, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. I will absolutely take you up on it, and I will extend an invitation for you all to come to, when you come to the Capitol or Chicago, please be our guest. We would love to have you and your students. Um, one, thank you for this opportunity again. Um, I appreciate being invited um, and having a, just a moment to talk a little bit about myself and CMS in the state of Illinois. And obviously, thank you, Director Shaw and the Institute for the work that you do. Um, it's so critically important that we are inspiring people who have a mind for policy um, and practice to be thinking about how they can plug in. And plug in looks different and life stages are different, but if nothing, if folks take nothing else away, I hope from my, our talk today is that whatever your background is, it is relevant because it informs what you bring to the table. And so I'm just excited to be able to have a few moments with some of your, your, your audience today to just share out my thoughts on the importance of public policy. And again, thank you for your time. Great. Well, thank you so much, Director Ford, and we look forward to seeing you in Carbondale. Uh, hopefully, maybe on your way to Barbados, you can uh, divert to uh, Carbondale. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.